Today's scripture reading comes chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. You can find that on page 941 if you have a pew Bible, which you can find also in front of you. But Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. When you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. So at the end of last week's passage, uh, we ended with the topic of angels. And so if I had to ask a question, perhaps we even take a poll here of those that are sitting and listening to this, um, I'm just going to stop. I'm just, maybe just keep it the way it is. Yeah, don't, is it, is it bad? If it's bad, if, if we could just keep it the way it is, if it's too loud, just keep it and I'll adjust from here. Or I can just use a wireless. Is that okay? Okay. Let's just, yeah, let's just keep it the way it is. And so if I were to take a poll and I were to ask, do you believe in angels? What would the poll be? I'm just curious, right? So this is a fascinating topic for many reasons. Do you believe in angels? Um, one of them being an AP poll says that 8 out of 10 Americans believe in angels. Those 8 out of 10 Americans also include atheists. This is fascinating because there are tons of theories behind what or who angels are. There are a lot of theories behind it, even amongst Bible-believing Christians. Like, for instance, do you have a guardian angel. Do you believe that you have a guardian angel? And so there are, there, there are debates around just that question. If you have a guardian angel, even amongst Bible-believing Christians, and some people would even take verse 14 of what we just read to mean that we in fact do. There are noteworthy angels in the Bible, angels that stand out throughout the Bible, angels like Gabriel, who brought the good news of Jesus' birth to Mary. Or the archangel Michael, who would fight Satan. And of course, Satan himself, who was once an angel, 
but rebelled and was cast out of heaven. And I talk about Satan and his wiles a little more on tomorrow's podcast, but I would be, uh, I think we should be very careful to attribute correctly to Satan what we should attribute, not too much and not at the same time, not too little. Satan means adversary or the enemy, and the adversary he is. R.C. Sproul, Sproul would write in his book, Pleasing God, to underestimate Satan is to suffer from the pride that goes before destruction. To overestimate him is to grant him more honor and respect than he deserves. So Satan is powerful, a powerful angel for sure, a fallen angel, but he is still a creature, meaning he is under the sovereignty of God. So angels are also a part of the inhabitation of heaven. The kingdom of God is also made up of angels. There aren't two places that we'll see, like a place for angels and a place for humans. At the end, they will reside in the same plane as the presence of God. In fact, we ought to know that in our worship to God right now, we believe that we are brought up into the presence of God. So right now, when we did the Sursum Corda, when we sang the songs of, you know, uh, the beginning, the invocation of prayer, we believe that it is God who lifts us up into his presence by sending us the Holy Spirit. So if we are brought into the presence of God, I think it's fairly easy for us to deduce then that we are in the presence of God and his angels. In our study of 1 Corinthians 11, we saw that Paul mentions that women should have a symbol of authority over their heads. Why? Why should women have a symbol of authority over their heads? Well, because of the angels. This is what Paul says. So angels are undoubtedly a part of creation, and they are beings that we ought to be aware of in the very least, in the very least. Now, if you look on the internet and look up angels, you will find a whole range of ideas on who and what angels are. It'll range in all sorts of venerations. Even now, there are religious practices around the world worshiping angels. 2,000 years ago, though, this was a major issue in the Eastern world. And with the growing converts now happening in the first century church, those con converts brought in this baggage of angel worship to the church, into the Christian religion. So there was a problem of Christians falling into angel worship. And Paul's letter to the Colossians is one of those letters that specifically deals with this problem. But it's in Hebrews where we find a most comprehensive view on how Christ is superior to angels. Some of you might hear this, what I just said, and go, well, obviously, of course he is. But let's remember that angels are heavenly beings, meaning they are in the very presence of God. So when they would visit people here on earth, the Bible would record the people that were visited by these angels would fall face down in fear, some of them to even drop like dead men. It would only be after the angel would say, fear not or do not be afraid that these people would be able to get out of their locked state of fear. 
I was thinking about what is a locked state of fear? Have you ever been in that? And some, sometimes we kind of see videos of people in a locked state of fear with hilarity. I think, I think there's this one ride called the slingshot or something, and people get flung into the air into what looks like a slingshot in a two-seater, and they start screaming, and then they pass out. And then they're still in the air, and then they wake up, and then they find out that it's still in the air. They scream, and they pass out again. And so there is this kind of locked state of fear that we could even see perhaps a little comically in the world today. However, the locked state of fear that we see people engaged in in the Bible when they see the angels is something so terrifying that they would not be able to get out of it ever until or unless the angel would say, fear not. So these are terrifying creatures, but as terrifying as they are, they are still creatures. And to worship any creature, even if they are angels, would be breaking the second commandment. It would be committing the sin of idolatry. It would also seem to be that there was a confusion on whether Jesus was an angel to some whatever degree. Maybe some people thought that the Messiah was like one of the archangels. And that's surprisingly a difficult kind of question to answer. How do you know that the Messiah isn't just one of the angels and one of the archangels? How do you know this? How do you know for sure that Jesus isn't just one of the angels, perhaps the best angel, but still an angel? And this is where the author of Hebrews shows what is absolutely necessary to have a right hermeneutic. How do you know that you are interpreting the Bible correctly? After all, haven't people throughout history interpreted the Bible incorrectly and incorrectly to their doom? So the proper hermeneutic that we must hold on to, this is what the author of Hebrews does, is to interpret the Bible. And if there's a difficult portion in the Bible, we interpret the Bible with the Bible. And in this section, he goes on to explain the previous statement he made in verse 4 that we saw last week. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's a loaded statement. What does it mean when he says Jesus became more superior to angels? And what does it mean that he inherited a name? What's that name after all? So the first question that I just asked, he answers in chapter 2, but he takes the rest of chapter 1 to answer what it means that he inherited a name. And what is that name? Well, in this context, in the context that we have so far in the first four verses, it must mean the name of Son, S-O-N. Because the name Jesus isn't mentioned anywhere. Now there are those that will say that this can actually have a twofold meaning behind it. Alluding to son meaning Lord. Which he also calls him by in chapter 2. And I think that's right. To have the name of son is to have the name of Lord. And to have the name of Lord to the Hebrews would have meant to understand that Jesus is Lord. Or in the Greek, Jesus is Kyrios. In the Septuagint, Kyrios, which means Lord, in the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. The Septuagint, they would write Kyrios whenever they would see the word Adonai. 
You see, the people in Israel in Old Testament times feared God so much that they wouldn't even say the name that God gave them, which is Yahweh. People wouldn't say that name. They wouldn't even dare write that name. They wouldn't even mention the name. But instead, whatever in the scriptures there was the word Yahweh, what they would say instead of Yahweh is Adonai. And Adonai meant Lord. We actually still keep this tradition. Even Christians still keep this tradition because whenever we see Yahweh in the Old Testament, we translate it in the English uh, language as Lord, but capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. We translate it as Lord. So whenever you see in the English translation of the Old Testament, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that Lord is a direct translation of Adonai, which is what was said instead of Yahweh, because Adonai means Lord. And to be the son, then, would mean that people would have known that he is also Adonai or Kyrios. So then to inherit a name, I'm going back to what it means to inherit a name, a name that is much superior even to angels would mean that he, the son, meaning Jesus, Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. Why would we use the word inherit then? Doesn't that mean you receive something that you once didn't have? Would that suggest that Jesus wasn't God before, right? Because if you inherit something, that means you didn't have it. So people, people would discuss this, debate this. And the answer to that is no. This was a huge controversy in the early church, even up until the fourth century. It was even called an Arian controversy because Arius would deny the deity of Jesus, saying that because in the Bible, doesn't it say that Jesus is the firstborn? That means he was a created being. If you're born, you're created. And so that's why he believed in that line of thinking, Jesus being the firstborn is mean maybe he was the first act of creation, but he is creation is what Arius would think and his followers would believe. And if that's the case, then although Jesus may have some divine attributes, he can never be fully divine, meaning he is not God. But that line of thinking is true. If Jesus is created, he is not, in fact, God. If Jesus was created, he can never be God. And yes, when people ask me, are there some things that God cannot do, the answer is yes. For instance, God cannot create himself or another God. Whatever God creates by the very definition and nature of creation or being created, you would not be God. If you are created, that means you are not eternal. You cannot be God. If Jesus was created, he is not God. But Arius misunderstood the meaning of the word firstborn, and that's why this whole controversy took place in the fourth century. But firstborn is also referenced in Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, if I take firstborn in that context, being firstborn isn't what he is because he is made. Rather, it is a relational reference, not a biological reference. And that's what's made clear when we recite the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed, which we recited earlier this morning, is when we say Jesus is begotten. That means he is of the same essence as God. 
but he is not made. That means he is not created. Jesus is not created. That means he is not in the order of angels who were actually the highest order of creation. He's even higher than that, meaning he is the creator, as the author said in verse 2. And how the author of Hebrews does this and shows this is fascinating because he starts to exposit and go through biblical theology like no one had done before. In verse 5, he quotes two sections of Scripture, one from Psalm 2-7 and the other from 2 Samuel 7-14. He puts them together, and he says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son? So this first quote from the psalm would have had an application. If you looked at Psalm 2-7, it would have had an application to David, but you would recognize, and the Jewish people recognized, that this is an incomplete application and only could be a perfect application if it's applied to the Messiah. And then he pairs that up with the second quote, recognized in the early church as already messianic. Paul even quotes it in Acts 13, 33 in Antioch when he says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son today, I have begotten you. So in the raising of Jesus, the scripture is fulfilled. And again, the inherited name then is a relational name that we are to understand. Not to be confused with Jesus being a creation. And now the author says this outright, what I just said in the next verse, by quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, from the Septuagint. But he says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Worshiping anything other than the Creator God would be in violation of the second commandment. But we are to worship the Son. Even all of God's angels are to worship the Son. Jesus isn't just superior to the angels. He is profoundly superior. And as such, it is the angels' proper duty to worship the Son. But the writer of Hebrews isn't done yet. Having established the superiority of Jesus over the angels who happen to be the most exalted of God's creation, and I don't want to belabor the point too much, but they are, because who else can stand in the very presence of God? Because if we stood in the presence of God, it says we would just die, but there are angels that stand in the very presence of God, albeit their eyes are covered, their feet are covered, and they're flying with two wings, meaning they are not standing still in the presence of God, as it says in Isaiah 6. But he goes on in verse 7, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This time he quotes some Psalm 104, verse 4, and here it shows the incredible power that angels possess in terms of the natural world. Although they are supernatural creatures in terms of element, what is actually more powerful than wind or fire? And now even in our world, right, in our modern-day world, there is much lore concerning earth, water, wind, and fire. But the most powerful winds and fires would overtake any other element with ease. And people with just uh, common sense kind of could imagine this. And this is what the Bible says. This is what the Lord equips his angels with. 
the most powerful of elements. This shows us, however, however, when you see this, it shows us they are bound by their function. The wind is made. That means it is created. And the fire was meant to be a ministerial tool. Their task is one of bound service. And he contrasts verse 7 with verses 8 and 9. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is a quote from Psalm 45, verse 6 and 7. It's a psalm for actually a marriage feast. And the writer knows that this portion here in Psalm 45 points to more than just the marriage. Because this quotation is pointing out the sovereignty of the Son. They wouldn't dare address an earthly king as God. And yet here is a reference to God. And the writer of Hebrews is rightly pointing out that this was meant to point to the Messiah. The latter part of the quote refers to a coronation. And its poignancy of the king in the psalm being anointed above other kings and the Messiah being anointed beyond the angels, that kind of comparison shouldn't be missed. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is getting at. Peter also knew this, and he referred to Jesus as the anointed one in this context. In Acts 10, 38, he would say how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now in the next quote, we'll get to this uh, Peter sermon back again, but the next quote from Psalm 102, it says, And, in verse 10, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. If you were listening to this back in the first century, you also would have probably understood that the ancient Greeks and Romans had this idea that the universe was indestructible. This idea is also utilized in storytelling and movies, even movies today in today's world. It's the idea of the multiverse, multiverse. And some might say that the idea of the multiverse today is backed by science, but the ancient Greeks would have also responded the same way. We believe in the multiverse because of math and science. See, Lucifer and Democritus, these guys, these two philosophers and intellectuals, Democritus was Lucifer's student, by the way, but they would theorize in 430 BC, so 5th century BC, that all of universe, this is 2,500 years ago, okay? That all of the universe was formed, and its matter was formed through fundamental individual, indivisible, excuse me, particles. These fundamental indivisible particles made up all matter in the universe as we know it. And what did they call it? They called them atoms. Atoms. This is why their followers are called atomists. But their conclusion, again, this was 2,500 years ago, was that everyday objects that we see are made up of these atoms that unite through collision. Yes, 
2,500 years ago, we had a name for these smallest units of elements. And later on, the Stoics would come along and say that there was nothing random about human composition or the cosmos or the world, right? They weren't just random atoms colliding into each other. They're all connected to one single, indomitable, immortal soul. So the universe had this kind of soul. This is what the Stoics believe. And if that's the case, this is what they would later on go on to say, that whatever is lost isn't permanent. It's a cycle of endless renewal and rebirth. Combine that Stoic philosophy with Lucifer's and Democritus's atomic theory, then you would have world within worlds, an innumerable amount of worlds, what we call the multiverse. Later, though, a few hundred years later, ancient thinkers like Aristotle, even going down to Copernicus, they wouldn't give, they wouldn't give in to the idea that there was a multiverse because that didn't make any sense for them to continue to progress with knowledge and science, which is what science means, knowledge, right? You couldn't go on with this idea of the multiverse. What's fascinating is that in recent days, just in recent days, we have revived this idea of the multiverse, which had been debunked like 2,200 years ago. And now we're continuing to try to develop on this, not only in our comic books, but in modern day science with like, there's a possibility of a string of extremely rapidly expanding things that took place once we had the Big Bang and things like that. So that's called the string theory. And so people are trying to develop on this multiverse uh, theory. I even hear, I even heard of something. So if you believe in this multiverse, I even heard of something called, and this might seem random, but I think it's relevant because of what's happening today. Something called the Avatar Blues. I don't know if you've heard about it. People go into depression. This is real, apparently. People go into depression just thinking of the notion that we lost the beauty of this alternative universe that we saw in the movie Avatar. Not even kidding. That's the real thing. And some, some of you Avatar fans would be like, yeah, yeah, I was a little sad, right? And so I'm, I'm, I'm saying this because I'm just one of those people that never got it. I never got what's so good about that movie. I thought it was trite. And if you took umbrage at what I just said, you can email our complaint department at podcast.cgsnj.org or alternatively at samyang.cgs.org. But I think, I personally think that our universe holds beauty beyond even our imagination. I mean, we still haven't even discovered everything here on this earth. We haven't gone to the deepest depths of the oceans. And someone comes up with a blue watery world and I'm supposed to be impressed. But, but like the, he, the writer, the, the people receiving this letter, the Hebrews, they would have understood this. And what the writer is reinforcing is this idea and understanding that amidst the pagan views trying to infiltrate the Christian church, there is actually one cosmos, there is one world, and it is not infinite because it is created. That means it will pass away, but the one who created it will not pass away. And that's where this final quote from Psalm 110 comes. In verse 13, and to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What he finishes with is that you can sense 
that this has been a theme that is running through all the previous themes of this chapter. There was never a time, never a time where angels are conceived as sitting, especially not at the right hand of God. Sitting means ruling, and at the right hand of God means enthroned. So if you're sitting at the right hand of God, that means you are ruling enthroned. So Jesus isn't just simply superior to angels. He is transcendentally superior. He has absolute power over all. That's the word used, all, especially his enemies. They are his footstool. That's how much he is above them all. By, Jesus, by saying Jesus is the Son, he is being declared as the Lord and Messiah. Jesus quotes this psalm too as well in Mark 12. He asks this, how can the scribes say that Christ is the Son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. That's how the Gospel of Mark is written. The great throng heard him gladly. This stuff was fascinating to the Jews because this is everything they've been waiting for. Whether they fully realized it or not, this right here is the Messianic prophecy fulfillment happening right before their eyes. And this is what we ought to see as well. When we see the scriptures declare Jesus as truly God and truly man, he is Lord and he is the son of David. This is Jesus Christ. This is the pinnacle of the writer's exposition of this passage, this verse 13. And he ends it with verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Now, there is a remarkable difference between angels and Jesus. As great as angels are, they are truly great. I'm not trying to put them down in any way. As great as they are, they have a function of service. Even the noblest of angels, the archangels, are sent to serve. There is a difference between Christ's temporary servant status as it says in Philippians 2, and him discarding that position to take a seated role at the completion of his work and that of the angels who are in constant committed service and they will never be enthroned. And with that, the theme of the following verses and chapters set up with these final verses, final words in verse 14 regarding salvation. See, the focus of God's plan of salvation is shown here. It's for his people. It's through Christ's sonship, him being the firstborn, that we are also made heirs. We are to inherit salvation. We are to be given salvation. And now I said I'd get back to it. I'm going back to Peter's sermon in Acts 10. He says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, 
not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to go, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You see, Jesus being the Son, the writer is setting us up to understand who he is because we need to understand because of who he is, what he has done is that much more significant. Who is Jesus Christ? You need to understand who Jesus Christ is. He isn't just a creature. He isn't someone that we can just be like, hey, buddy, how are you? He's in your boyfriend. He's in any of those things. He's in, he isn't any of those things that contemporary world would say he is. He is the Son. He is Lord, and he is Messiah, and he has come to us to save us. It is this Jesus Christ who has come to us to give us salvation. Now, if this Jesus Christ, who is superior and transcendent to any other creature in the world, because he is God himself, has given us something, who can take it away? Who can say it's not true? Who can say it's not effective? Who can say it will not complete what it set out to do? So if you have the Son, you are truly saved. And if you are free in the Son, you are truly free indeed. That is who Jesus Christ is. And that's how important it is that the writer of Hebrews set up that we understand who the Son is before we are even to go into the topic of salvation, which we'll get to in the following weeks. But praise be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, God three in one, but whom he has shown us salvation through his Son, Jesus Christ. And by him, we receive our forgiveness of sins. We have a right standing before God. And now we are promised through Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, that we will be in eternity with him. That's an incredible promise, my friends. And when we receive Jesus Christ, when we say, when we can affirm by the power of his Holy Spirit, by his grace, we can say that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. Our lives are changed. Our hearts are changed. It's moved toward God. What was once dead becomes alive. And now we can live in Christ's will. We can live in the joy that was meant for us. And that is what we are to profess when we say Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your son. We thank you that through him and by him, we have the promise of salvation. Help us now to continue, not only to meditate, but to live out in truth, obedience to you and your will. Thank you, Lord, for showing us this incredible beauty and truth, the truth and beauty of your Son. And we pray that we will be disciples of Christ that will please you. Let's take this time to pray and reflect. Reflect on the Lordship 
of Jesus Christ, how he is the Son, how he is our Savior, and the assurance we have because who is declaring it to us. And let's thank God for his salvation. Let's pray.